0: you might wanna start forging strong social bonds in adulthood. A new study of baboons in Kenya shows adversity early in life can reduce their lifespan, but strong social bonds in adulthood can help them get back on track, according to researchers from Duke University. The study found that baboons who had challenging childhoods were able to reclaim two years of life expectancy by forming strong friendships. And the effects of early adversity and adult social interaction on survival were independent. The findings suggest that interventions that occur through the lifespan could improve survival. This is Pulse Check. I'm Megan Messerly. In an animal welfare case that could potentially be used by states to restrict or expand abortion access beyond their borders, The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the right of California voters to determine the requirements for meat sold in their state. The case could embolden states that want to limit the mailing of abortion pills and restrict the sale of goods from states with different views on the issue. You might want to rethink opting for alternative sugar-free sodas and non-sugar sweeteners. The World Health Organization has issued guidelines cautioning against the use of aspartame, saccharin, or stevia, and recommends people to opt for foods and drinks with naturally occurring sugars and unsweetened options. Some short-term studies show sweeteners can help with weight loss, but long-term studies linked their consumption to higher risks of obesity, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. And... OpenAI CEO Sam Altman will testify before the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law today, as lawmakers consider regulating artificial intelligence. Politico's Ruth Reeder spoke to Gary Marcus, an AI entrepreneur and professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU, who is also testifying, about what he sees as the concerns and opportunities of integrating AI into healthcare. Here's part of their conversation.
1: Well, so thank you so much for joining me here. Uh, You are hosting Humans versus Machines now this podcast and in your your first couple episodes are about IBM Watson um which had an epic rise and fall with its first win on jeopardy um and then you know the company tried to bring Watson into healthcare and particularly into cancer and I won't spoil the whole episode obviously but Ultimately, Watson kind of failed in healthcare and in cancer. And it seemed like part of the reason for that failure was because the team that was working on Watson and bringing it into these healthcare institutions wasn't really working directly with doctors and researchers. Is that sort of a fair assessment?
2: I mean, there were certainly some doctors involved. One of the people that we had on the podcast was a researcher, and he expressed a lot of dismay about how the researchers were being used. There were certainly doctors like coding stuff up and, and being consulted to some degree. But the researcher that we talked to, Ari Caroline, who's now running a, a startup called Weave, felt like IBM was not really doing the research that needed to get done to validate the stuff. He felt like they were in a hurry, that they wanted to make a lot of money quickly, and that there's a lot of legwork you need to do to make sure the stuff even works. In any domain, you really have a challenge of going from a demo of something to a real commercial product. And in medicine, one of those steps is getting doctors or nurses to want to use it, let's say, if it's something in the hospital. Another is making sure that it's really robust enough. Do you collect the data in one hospital? Does it work in another hospital? Like teaching hospitals are going to be different from other kinds of hospitals. So you have questions about, like, does the system really causally understand what's going on well enough? Is the system easy enough to use? Is it rewarding to the doctors? So, you know, one of our guests talks about how... um, At one point, Watson was making some predictions. Some of them were wrong. And some of them were like so obvious to the doctors. They're like, you know, what's for dinner? Duh. And and so, like, you know, if you're going to get doctors to use something, we all know how busy they are. Like, it's got to be rewarding enough to them and tells them something they don't know and something that is true that they don't know and that works in their environment that they don't know. And Watson wasn't delivering.
1: So, despite the fact that Watson was a failure in healthcare, AI in healthcare has continued unabated. We are seeing development there, often in more sort of like niche contexts, right? An algorithm for a particular indication, whether that's, you know, there's some experimentation going on in radiology. AI for predicting sepsis has been a big topic of discussion because there is an algorithm that was put out by an electronic medical record company called Epic that was not so good before it hit the market and before doctors started using it, what do you think the guardrails around some of this AI development should be? Because in some cases, there is a lot of research going on, to your point, right? We're seeing this happening in academia, but we're also just starting to see AI come on the market for healthcare in ways that are not, well, not yet regulated, though there are some questions there about, you know, the FDA is obviously trying to step in a little bit
2: I mean, I'm not a complete expert in this area, so I can't give you sort of chapter and verse. But what I would say is that I'm all for doing research around this, but that there's a line between research and deployment. In terms of regulation, we have to think of these things roughly like we think about um, drug studies, which is like you try things out on a small scale before you deploy them on a large scale. My biggest concern right now is there's a lot of technology that is not very well regulated um, like chat search engines that could give people medical advice where we don't really have a system in place even to see are people using these systems in that way. Um, there's lots of work, let's say on radiology, for example, where I think people are fairly careful about this. There's somewhere it's sloppy. I mean, many times when you read a study about a new result in radiology, if you look at it closely, you realize there's no test of generalization there at all. There's some extravagant claims and you don't really know, is this going to hold up? Or during COVID, there were like hundreds of studies where people would say like, I can listen to somebody's cough and decide whether they have COVID. And often they would work like 70% of the time. And then you're like, well, what do you do with that? That doesn't, you know, save you from to do a COVID test. It's cute, but it's not an actual you know, medically worthy thing. Um, And so, you know, we have to hold high standards on this. I think we are entering an era where typically you're going to get the best results by having a human plus a machine working in tandem. So, you know, there's a fair amount of data, I think, in radiology right now that look like that. There could be a world someday where you just use the machine, you don't need the person's judgment. But we're not at that point yet. You know, machines can look at the pictures, but they can't really read the text that well inside the record. So they don't know how to have an integrated picture the way a good radiologist would. So there was a rumor we'd lose all our or wouldn't need any radiologists. The truth is we don't have enough radiologists um, because the machines aren't good enough to replace uh, a radiologist wholesale, but they're good enough now. I think that they're starting to help radiologists. People are starting to have solid enough data. You know, you have to do lots of studies, look different circumstances. (coughs) One of the things people forget about machines is that they're not people. People start to treat the machines as if, The machines reason just like they do, or their doctor does, and they don't. For example, a machine may not understand that a particular slide is prepared in a lousy way, and that the lighting is off, and get thrown by some you know little glitch in the lighting preparation. Whereas a radiologist would say, ah, yeah, they screwed up the slide, but I'll still work with this." Um, The machines are not good enough to kind of reason on their feet. You see the same thing. excuse me, driverless cars, like a Tesla was summoned. That's when you call it across a parking lot, an airplane trade show, and it ran into a jet. You know, any person would be like, that's a huge, probably expensive vehicle. I do not want to crash into it. But because it wasn't in the training set for the system, it didn't understand what a jet even was. And so we get a lot of these questions around generalization um, in medicine. Machines aren't that flexible around it yet. So that's why we need you know, very careful clinical research to evaluate these things, and I would say that's still in the early stages for medical AI in general. That we should absolutely pursue that. But when you roll something out, you want to be confident that it's really going to help a wide range of people, and so that has to be a, a much higher bar.
1: So I wanted to come back to ChatGPT and ChatGPT four, and sort of the use cases in medicine. Obviously, you know, there is a concern around people using GPT to answer their Pressing medical questions online the way that you would sort of type a medical question into a Google search bar, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, the big secret with Google is that for most of your medical searches, they don't do the regular kind of page rank algorithms and stuff like that. They actually have you know, professional doctors that write things out and they, they shunt you to those things. And it's going to be interesting to see whether they can do that in the context of these chat style searches, or whether they just let the chatbots kind of come up with their own answers, which, you know, we know these systems hallucinate, they make stuff up, they make up sexual harassment charges that are bogus, they're going to make up stuff about biology that's bogus, like they'll be right often, but they'll also be wrong sometimes. Um, And so there's a big question there in my mind about what people will do with the chat style searches, and whether they can restrict them so that they don't give a lot of bad advice.
1: I think it's interesting that you brought up that study, too, because there are some people or some researchers who are thinking, well, you know, for basic questions, for certain basic questions, especially if there is sort of like a limiter involved or these are somehow vetted, like chat might be able to be a more empathetic doctor because doctors don't actually have that much time to be
2: good on conversation questions. and bad yeah. And so, I mean... You know, eventually we'll get to an AI that is both good on conversation and good on facts. I would argue that's further away than a lot of people think, that it requires some fundamental rethinking in how we build our AI. It's certainly possible in principle, but I'm just not sure that we're there yet.
1: Right. And then I guess just like looking ahead, what do you think is so far, based on your knowledge, some of the best use cases potentially for AI in healthcare or medicine?
2: I think in the long term, the dream of Watson is the right one, which is to give personalized medical advice for you, integrating everything that's in the medical literature. But I think we can't quite deliver that yet. And so in the near term, things like what Suchi is trying to do, they're much narrower. They're not such ambitious bets to like change all of medicine. Um, But to take one problem, really work on it hard, on the science of it, on the kind of sociology of getting human beings to use it in context, making sure the product is right. We'll see a lot of incremental innovations like that over the next 10 years. And I think medicine will be noticeably better in 10 years. Doctors make mistakes. They will make fewer mistakes. We'll build better tools to reduce those mistakes. So, you know, I'm optimistic we'll see some things. I just don't think it's going to be like the radical sudden game changer that people wanted to see with Watson and again want to see with GPT-4. It's still an open empirical question, like how well this stuff works. We have to do the science here to find out. My, my biggest concern is that people are going to overuse these tools for medical advice and that, you know, it'll work for eight out of 10 people, but then your biology is a little bit different. The system doesn't know the right question to ask and give bad advice. Even more word people kind of using these as stand-in psychiatrists and friends and things like that. And you know, already we've we've seen maybe one suicide tied to a chatbot conversation that went south, and and um it's a complicated story, but we have seen some things like that. There are a lot of people were using replica to have um almost like verbal sexual relationships, and then replica stopped doing that. A lot of people were genuinely depressed that they had, like lost. In this facet of their life. And so, like, we're messing with human beings here when when we portray these systems as being more human than they are. And so, I think I'm also worried about those risks. So, kind of bad medical advice and bad psychiatric advice. The work, like, to try to figure out how to make radiology out of this, I'm fine with that as long as we take it carefully and do it as science. Rushing ahead with the chatbots worries me a bit.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts on all this.
2: I'm talking to you. Take care.
0: And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra Abdullah and Annie Reese are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tine, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Megan Messerly. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.